we're not the only ones in this space. But I could also see how it would be onerous for a company to be talking to lots of nonprofits that can, you know, work with, um, you know, bringing them 20 candidates at a time, right. five candidates at a time. I think that the sector in the field in general is really embracing and centering um, this focus on equity. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let's Get to Work, a new podcast series from Red F Workshop. Red F Workshop is built exclusively to help employment social enterprises grow their businesses and increase their impact. We created this podcast to feature conversations with thought leaders and innovators who are making a difference in our communities, as well as to challenge us to think creatively and differently about the ways in which we can achieve success through employment social enterprise. Each episode features Red F's president and CEO, Carla Javits, in conversation with a leader in social enterprise. In today's episode, she speaks with Adrian Armstrong, CEO of Juma Ventures, an employment social enterprise serving opportunity youth from across the country. They cover a lot of interesting ground talking about corporate partnerships, automation and the future of work, and how Juma measures success. You'll get Adrian's insights as the head of such a high-performing social enterprise and hear her personal journey into the social enterprise sector. So without any further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode with Adrian Armstrong. Let's get to work. So Adrian, thanks so much for coming in today uh, to have a conversation. This is the second podcast. We're very excited about it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I want to ask you a little b- a bit about your leadership of Juma, but I guess the comment I wanted to open with is just, you know, you are building on an incredible legacy of leadership at Juma, and notably uh, Jim Shore, who many of us know has been a leader in social enterprise more broadly, uh, unfortunately and sadly just passed away. Uh, but he uh, ran Juma for a while. And then Mark Spencer, uh, who was also a terrific uh, leader of Juma, and now he's he's moved on into a new position. And I personally was very, very excited uh, when they announced that you were going to be the new leader of Juma. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, I'd love to know just a little bit about kind of what, what got you to Juma. What was, what was the journey that brought you there? Uh, kind of, you know, what got you interested in this kind of work? Uh, Share a little bit of that with us. Absolutely, um, it's it's a long story actually, and I'll start with um, growing up. So I grew up in a town that had some diversity, but it was pretty segregated um, in the neighborhoods and in the schools. Mm-hmm. And so in most settings growing up, I was the only person of color. And by the time I got to high school, I was always the only student of color in any of my classes. Um, And I was very aware from a very young age how people were being afforded opportunities and resources um, according to the color of their skin. And so I got interested at a pretty young age um, in in issues of equity. And so uh, when I was an undergrad, I studied in comparative studies and race and ethnicity. And I was part of a program where undergrad um, students were matched with mentors who were MBA students from the business school. And in the spring of my junior year, I was applying for internships and I reached out to my mentor to see if I could see a a sample of her cover letter. I'd I'd had a resume before, but I'd never written a cover letter. And the cover letter she shared with me was her own application to work at Juma, addressed to Jim Shore, um, through the Farber Fellowship, so through Red F. 
Um, so she was actually one of your Farber Fellows. Who was it? Um, her name is Safia Daniels, um, and I think that she lives in Scotland now, so we haven't kept in touch. Um, but that was the first time that I, I heard Juma. Yeah, and I, and I remember seeing Jim Shore's name on that cover letter. Uh, so after undergrad, I was working in philanthropy, and I went to a networking event for people of color in, in philanthropy, actually through the alumni program of the internship that I ended up getting through that cover letter. And at the event, I met Mark Spencer, and I began to volunteer with Juma. So that was back um, when Jim was CEO in 2005, 2006. And fast forward to 2011, uh, I was a couple years post-business school and I joined Juma as the Managing Director of Programs. And, and the rest is history. Um, so throughout those years, Juma has always been on my radar. Uh, and it's hard to explain, but there's a certain spark at Juma. I think it's because you're working with people at this very specific pivot point in their lives. Mm -hmm. They can go left or they can go right. They may not even see some of the paths available to them and they may need help opening a door or two. But it's very exciting working with young people and seeing how much they can grow in just the short time they've been with us. It, it sounds like initially at least sort of uh, inequity uh, and around race uh, might have motivated some of your earlier interests. I, I guess I wonder, you know, maybe from those earlier experiences and then kind of what you've been able to do at Juma, is there is there a thread there? Is there a connect? I mean, is there something you saw when you were younger that, you know, real, particularly resonates with you now as, as you're at Juma? Yeah, well, I actually think back to how I got my first job. Um, so my first job was at this coffee shop that was a few blocks from my house and it was a few blocks from my school. And I remember loving this place because I would go there with my dad on the weekends and I would go there with my friends after school and it had these big booths where we would sit around and do our homework. And so when I got to the age, um, you know, 15, 16, I started thinking I would like to have a job I thought I would like to work there. Mm -hmm. And my dad was friends with the manager. And so I remember one day going in with him and just trying to get up the courage to go up to him and ask, are there any job openings? And my dad just jumped in and he said, hey, can Adrian have a job? And the manager responded, sure. And, and that was that. But I think about that moment and I think about, you know, what if I, what if my dad didn't know managers of businesses? What if I didn't have a coffee shop that I loved to go to and it felt like home because I would go there with my friends and, and my dad and what if my dad wasn't around? How would I have gotten my first job? And I think that that's, um, you know, that's a need I see Juma filling for so many of our young people where they don't have that connection to that first job. And so Juma is able to, to fill that spot for them. And disproportionately, we are working with with, again, young people from low-income communities, um, young people of color, and um, you know they, they may not have the, the connections or the resources to that first job um, that others do. It's such a beautiful story, and I think it you know it does cut to the heart of why a lot of us do this work around social enterprise because it is easy to forget maybe that those informal connections that we have 
the confidence that that builds, yeah. uh, people we can ask questions to about, you know, kind of what to do in the workplace and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, uh, I would include myself, you know, many of us have that advantage, but many people don't. And how do you recreate that in a, uh, a situation that really has that kind of sense of love and respect that it takes to do that well? And I think that's a lot of what social enterprises do. Uh, beautiful story. Uh, so I, I guess since uh, you've been at Juma, how long have you been there now? So I started my career as a volunteer uh, around 2005. I've been full-time staff since 2011, and I moved into the role of CEO in 2017. Yeah, so you've you've seen a lot. You've seen yes. it change a lot <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> over Many all these years. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the uh, the Ben and Jerry's experiment, and then mm-hmm. being out at the ballpark with the Ben and Jerry's cards. So many different things that happened over the years. Uh, so I guess, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about sort of what changes you've seen at Juma over time and then what changes you're deliberately trying to foster now, now that you're the CEO there? Yeah, definitely. So since since I've joined Juma, um, I'll speak you know specifically t- um, to the time since I joined as staff, we've tried a lot of different programs and we've worked with youth from a lot of different backgrounds. And part of that was... Um, I came on in a time when we were expanding geographically and we led with an ethos of let's get to know a community, understand who needs our jobs the most. We would hold open hiring days and we would see who, who wanted our jobs. Um, we would see who's working in the community already and how can we complement the, their services. Everything we do is through partnership. And so we, we led with a very organic approach of getting to know the youth and getting to the, know the community need. Um, and what that, um, what that evolved into, though, was uh, a much larger footprint seven years later um, and many different programs. So in the past couple of years, we've done a lot of work to really narrow down who we're working with and and what outcomes we can expect to see with them in in their time at Juma, really based on this platform of the social enterprise, based on the starting point of the job. And currently, we're modifying our program, which is called Youth Connect, um, and restructuring it to better take into account the needs of our young people um, and really meet them where they're at. So our program is being designed designed to be much more youth-centric, I would say. Um, We've also adopted new organizational values, and the first one is Youth First. So I think that probably speaks for itself. Uh, we've we recognized over the years that the youth that were best positioned to serve based on our platform of the social enterprise are youth who need to figure out how to balance both school and work. Mm-hmm. So our young people often don't have the luxury of going back to school full time. Um, but if they don't continue on in their education and earn post-secondary credentials, um, they will likely be stuck in this cycle of entry-level minimum wage work. Um, and so after now decades of experience in you know, providing both the work experience and um, you know, significant expertise in education, um, we, we believe we've developed this expertise in helping youth really navigate both. And that's, our, that's what we're focused on now. That's sort of our sweet spot. 
Um, and it matches the reality of what young people need today, right? I think the public discourse is much more open now than it was 10 years ago about many alternatives to um, succeed and thrive in careers and earn a living wage. It used to be that the four-year college degree was the end all, all and only option. And I think that um, people are talking about how many more paths there um, there can be and frankly that our economy needs, right? It really matches where how the economy is evolving as well. Um, and then finally, um, you know, we have put a pause on geographic expansion for now, mm-hmm. um, although we, we are always fielding inquiries and lots of interest to, to bring our, our model to new sites. Um, but we believe that we can serve so many more youth and serve them better by focusing on our current footprint. And we have a very explicit goal now of sustainable growth. Mm-hmm. What just uh, for those who don't know maybe as much about Juma, can you just explain a little bit cause about the program, the business side of it, uh, kind of more concretely what you do? Because I think a lot of uh, people working in social enterprise, uh, that's something that they think about a lot is who should they be targeting? And then how does the business side of it relate to sort of the programmatic and support side? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Juma is a social enterprise that operates businesses with the purpose of employing young people. We help them earn their first paycheck. We help them learn how to manage their money. And on the job, they gain essential skills like communication, personal responsibility, and teamwork. Ultimately, we connect them to their next job and set them on a path to a career. So that's the elevator pitch. Um, what that actually looks like is our businesses are, um, we sell food and beverage and have hospitality roles at sports and entertainment venues. So we're in over 20 venues across the country. In some cases, we have responsibility for selling a certain product, like all of the coffee or the hot chocolate or ice cream um, in a stadium. In some cases, we are in a um, staffing contract arrangement with the stadium where we're filling specific roles for the venue. Um, so both, both through both structures of the business, we're able to first and foremost provide a job for a young person. And the job is is often the hook that gets them interested. Again, we're working with young people who really need um, some financial stability. They're at a they're time in their lives where they're probably disconnected from school and work. About half of our population is homeless or housing insecure, and they need some stability. Mm-hmm. We then, through both the -the on-the-job experience and the training that they get on the job, as well as pre-shift lessons, um, they have a a program coordinator that works with them on everything from getting set up with a bank account, um, learning financial literacy. We do that through workshops, through online modules, through mentoring. We um, help them with their resume and cover letters through one-on-one coaching. We help them explore different careers they might be interested in that will earn them a living wage and um, make sure that they understand the education that they'll need to pursue in order to um, be eligible for those careers. Um, We take them on career tours and college tours, and then we connect them. Our our goal for them is after the six months with us working with Juma and experiencing um, these wraparound services, they'll connect to um, either employment and or education. And again, for most young people, it's gonna, the successful um, combination is is gonna be to to pursue both of them at the same time. Yeah, 
incredibly uh, impressive program uh, that you have and business. What are some of the ways that you you measure success? What are the kind of the key metrics for you? So first and foremost, we're focused on how many young people can we employ? How many young people we are able to connect to permanent employment and or education after their time with us? And how many of them are persisting in that employment in, after 90 days um, or after a year? Um, there's a lot of other metrics that we use to measure the efficiency and effectiveness of the business. So um, we look at the number of shifts and hours that we're able to provide each young person. We look at our contract fulfillment rates. So if we have the ability to staff this many young people for this many hours, how many are we actually fulfilling? We look at um, whether or not the young people practice savings while they were with us. Um, you know, it's a goal for them to set up direct deposit and to have a savings plan. Do they follow through on that? Do they meet a savings goal? Yeah, so, so some of the asset, asset development. development. Exactly. Um, and ultimately, when they leave us, they we would like them to have a plan um, to get to that living wage career. So, so how we describe it as Juma is job one. We'll connect you to job two. But it's probably going to be job four or five that earns you that living mm -hmm. wage. And so what do you need to do to get there? And so it's that's not a metric, but that's the plan that they should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're preparing people so that they can be successful once they get into the workforce, basically. Yeah. Uh, just one, one specific, because a lot of the social enterprises that we know about are based in major urban areas where, unfortunately, housing costs have gone crazy lately. Uh, so I was just curious, since you said many of the young people that you see are homeless or they may have experienced homelessness, how do you think about or how do you deal with, with housing in the context of the work you do? You're really focused on employment, uh, but I, yeah, just curious how you deal with that. Yeah, um, so most of our young people are not uh, purely living on the street or in their cars, although some are. Um, most of our young people are couch surfing, and so they're actually looking to Juma to again, start to earn some money to get a little bit of financial stability. I mean, we have many young people who, um, when they come to us, the savings goal that they set is around being able to save up enough for a security deposit so they can get their own apartment and, and have that stability. We also try to work with partners. So a number of our young people are coming out of the foster care system, and there's great organizations that can support that population in securing um, either transitional or permanent housing. And so again, we try to do a lot in partnership. Right, as well. right. Yeah, so you help people save, and then uh, to the extent you can, tap other resources, mm -hmm. partners, and things. Exactly. That, that makes sense. Um, so what's what's most exciting to you uh, about uh, Juma today, and you know something I read uh, is that you're part of this Obama Foundation cohort. That's got to be exciting. I'd <laughs> uh, love to hear a little bit about that also. Yeah, so by far the most exciting that's happened to me personally in the past couple of weeks was that I got to meet President Obama. Oh, how thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> but I realized that wasn't your question. Um, so our, What was that like? Oh my gosh, it was breathtaking I was so I knew that there was a possibility that it would happen and I was so nervous leading up to it and I was just on pins and needles and he comes into the room it was a closed session there was about 40 of us it was the the CEOs of the grantee organizations and our the mayors that we're working with in this work 
Um, and and so I was just on pins and needles and, and he comes into the room and, and the room just sort of erupts with enthusiasm. Um, and I had been thinking beforehand, if I got the chance to meet him, what would I say? Um, and my husband actually gave me the advice, don't try to say anything. He's not going to remember <laughs> you. You need to focus on being able to remember the moment. And but so I wasn't planning on saying anything, um, but I got one of only a few handshakes because I happened to be on his path. And when he reached his arm out and I shook his hand, all I could think to say was thank you. Just gratitude for 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 who he is, for what he has done for our country, for what he continues to do. Um, so I just said thank you. And, and this is the to tone. This is the toned down version of me telling the story. <laughs> Needless to say, I was jumping out of my skin for the next couple of days with excitement. Um, so our work with my brother's keeper goes back actually to 2016 when we first la- launched our operation in Atlanta. Um, you know, again, we lead with what's going on in the community. How can we best fit in? And at that point there, My Brother's Keeper Alliance work was launching and we fit really nicely in, into one of their milestones. And so then fast forward a few years later, we had the opportunity last year to be the lead applicant to sort of revive and grow the work that had been going on um, in Atlanta. And so it's been really exciting to see the city of Atlanta and Fulton County come together to really grow this work. Um, and you know we have a unique lens uh, as a nonprofit in the space, as a neutral party, but with the infrastructure of a national organization right. that can really um, amplify the work. So in addition to that, but very much related, um, what I'm most passionate right, uh, most passionate about right now is the work we're doing with our corporate partners. Mm-hmm. So we are leveraging our expertise as a manager of youth to work with companies that need to figure out how to employ these young people, um, young people that might have been deemed previously as unemployable. They might have they might have barriers that. Um, that make it difficult to succeed in today's work environments. But we are able to run a social enterprise employing young people. Um, And so there's no reason that a large company shouldn't also be able to take a look at its practices, take a look at how they're hiring, selecting, managing, um, and evaluate if, if they can, you know, really, again, fill their workforce needs by adjusting um, how they're approaching young people. And so, you know, in this, we've really got a lens of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this goes back to sort of my core passion point around equity. Um, We are working with young people who are often overlooked, and we find that there are things that companies can do um, to, to make sure that those young people can not only be hired into their jobs, but can really thrive and succeed in their jobs and in their careers. And so in this work, our vision is that all youth have the opportunity to succeed and thrive in a career of their choice in a job market that is inclusive, equitable, and diverse. What, what, that's very exciting work. What, what are one or two maybe of the things you've learned about those practices? Because I think, you know, we, we just had the chance to go to the, the Great Place to Work for All conference mm-hmm. with all, you know, a lot of people from the corporate sector who are certainly thinking about uh, inclusion and diversity and equity, 
But I think you have a very unique lens into that that's a little bit different than maybe the average person would think about that issue. So I, I'm just curious, yeah, maybe what are a few of the learnings you're, you're sharing or you found? Yeah, some of the concrete things that we've done. Um, so we've gone into headquarters and done implicit bias trainings. That's something that we want to continue to expand. Um, you know, I think particularly when you're talking about um, our young people being entry-level employees and working with store managers who might not have have had the opportunity to have these, this type of training before, mm-hmm. um, getting those types of concepts um, into the regular training and, and sort of HR processes is really important. Um, we've worked with companies to evaluate their applications. So if they have an online application and Um, As an an adult staff, I go through it and I get hung up on page 17 because there's a checkbox and I don't know which way to check. There's no way a young person is going to be able to get through that application. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have one company that we were working with last year where their background check provider would just deny our youth. No explanation. And so we would inquire, what is the reason that this young person was precluded? And they would just reverse their decision. Well, that's problematic. <laughs> so maybe we need to evaluate what background check providers we're using. Um, we've worked with um, with companies on looking at how flexible shift times might enable their employees to go back to school, and that would ultimately benefit the company as well. And then sometimes it's as simple as you need to sit down with your new employee and, and make sure they understand their benefits. Just handing them a handbook is not enough for them to understand how to sign up for health benefits, how to take advantage of the tuition assistance programs. There's a lot of ways that we can support young people being stable in these jobs that are not just by virtue of the wages they're earning. Um, There's a lot more that they can get from from these jobs and they may not be currently taking advantage of it. Mm -hmm. Given the the climate we're living in, uh, I guess I wonder too, it seems like uh, likely many of the young people you're working with have experienced trauma in their lives and carry that. Is there is there anything in particular about that in what that you think about in relation to your work with employers or That's a great question. So that's work frankly that we are still doing um, with our managers internally. So right. in recent years we've started to make sure that more trauma-informed care training was infused with all of our staff, not just the program coordinators who are closest to the young people and then the enterprise managers, um, but but all, all of our staff are sort of aware of the principles um, and, and are designing programs and administering, um, you know, with, with that in mind. We have had some opportunities to also offer trainings um, in those topics to some of the staff at the stadiums and venues, uh, but that's been so far, so far it's been more ad hoc. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of tremendous accomplishments. Uh, So it's very exciting to hear about all of that. Uh, I guess I wonder for you as a leader, of course, there's always those things that that worry you, that keep you up at night. Uh, you know, what's what's on your mind? What's you know, what uh, what's troubling your dreams these days mm-hmm. in relation to Juma? So two things immediately come to mind um, in no particular order. Uh, automation and the next recession. Mm. So with automation, um, a lot of the jobs that our youth are currently in at, at our social enterprise 
and the jobs that we are connecting them to them next, I think are probably highest at risk for automation. Um, I think maybe in the past year or two, there was this uh, robot coffee bar that popped up in the financial district. That's one of the jobs our young people do. And I used to make a joke that we were safe as long as they couldn't figure out how to make how a robot could climb stairs. And within the past couple of weeks, I saw a headline that one of the delivery companies has a robot, it's probably Amazon, has a robot that can climb stairs. So definitely keeping an eye on that, because that's one of the main jobs that young people do when they're in the Juma job, is walking up and down the stands selling concessions. Um, uh, in terms of the next recession, so in the last recession, we actually managed to ride it out um, for two main reasons. One, probably first and foremost, is the giants, which brings in at this point about a third of our enterprise revenue, um, had a great winning streak. So that was the era of all the championships. Um, so we benefited from that. Um, second, as unemployment rose, we found that philanthropy often had a focus on jobs programs. And so we were often a good fit for where where foundation dollars were moving. Mm -hmm. But our systems work now is really focused on how can youth be successful beyond Juma? And how can we prepare them to be able to weather the next recession? And so we can't have a strategy that's predicated on full employment. Um, right now, there's nearly 5 million young people who are disconnected from school and work and 5 million entry-level jobs open at any time. And so we're working on, on closing that pipeline. But what if that ladder goes away? And I think probably um, my answer today is it's in this, this piece around the focus on equity and diversity, because that that is consistent. We, the next recession will not also come with some great solve around equity and diversity. If anything, it might mm -hmm. make it even worse. Mm -hmm. So I think if we can stay focused on how we are changing lives and changing systems with that lens, um, then I think we'll we'll continue to to stay relevant. Yeah, kind of changing the mindset of mainstream employers mm -hmm. so that it's a it's a better environment for people, no matter what the economy does. I mean, if we can get in, well, I mean, I would obviously like no recession, but if if we can get into the next recession and it doesn't disproportionately affect communities of color to such an extreme the way that the last one did, I would consider that to be a massive win. Yeah, and it sounds like also your asset building work is a, is a little bit part of this. Exactly. I mean, if people have a savings account or a little bit in the bank, obviously it's easier to survive through through a recession. Yeah, uh, I did want to mention I, on automation, because I, I just learned something, uh, an interesting fact that w actually was more encouraging, because you know we too worry about uh, what's happening with automation and jobs. Uh, apparently, uh, before ATMs came in, in the 70s, I think, there were like 300,000 bank tellers. Mm -hmm. And today, there are 600,000. Now, one would not imagine that because now we have ATMs all over the place. But apparently, it sort of automated a function that the tellers maybe didn't love doing to begin with. 
uh, and it allowed the banks, I guess, to spread more branches, and so they had a need for more tellers. So sometimes it's a little counterintuitive. I'm not sure we fully know how automation's going to play out yet. Well, it's part of the reason, frankly, that we have landed on the model where we have, where we're not training for a very specific industry or skill set or right. function, um, in part because we want our young people to, through our program, develop a growth mindset that they need to engage in continual lifelong learning, not just with Juma, not just in the next job, but really throughout their lives so that they can make themselves recession proof. And potentially, you know, if if the next ATM is threatening their job, they know that they need to learn the next skill that will be um, that will be comparable and that will find them into the next mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, is there is there a story, something specific from your time at Juma that kind of made a big impression on you, something you can share with us uh, about your, you know, the day-to-day at Juma? The story that really sticks out in my mind. Um, so every once in a while, I try to meet with young people one-on-one or, um, you know, host a dinner and, and try to just understand Um, why they came to Juma, what's working for them, what's not. And a few months ago, I had the opportunity to to host a dinner, and a young woman um, shared that if it were not for Juma, um, her brother would be dead. Mm. Um, And I come to find out as she's talking that her brother's actually sitting two people over from her, and so he was kind of nodding along. But he had been in the system, um, he had been in, in the juvenile justice system, and when he came out, uh, no one was willing to employ him, but Juma was. And she shared the story that, you know, if, if Juma hadn't employed him, he would have been on the streets and he would have gotten shot by now, and she couldn't lose another brother. And what she meant was she'd had another brother in that exact situation who'd gotten out and was back on the street and was not employed and they had lost him. And it really just hit me. I mean, that's definitely a very unique story. I wouldn't say that that's all of our young people, but to even it was to even know that we could have that influence, that impact in just that one family's life um, is incredibly humbling. Yeah, that's uh, it's such a painful reality, but it is a reality for I'm sure you know some of the young people that you serve. It reminds me of um, Father Greg from Homeboys, mm-hmm. you know, famous quote: "Nothing stops a bullet like a job." Um, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, just turning more broadly to the field, I mean, given you know this is this is a life changing field. Uh, I think for for those of us who believe in it, we see that and we hear stories like this, and we know how important it is. So I guess when you look uh, at the field, you know, what do you think are the the larger ch- uh, kind of challenges for us as a field, as a sector, um, and you know, and for the people that we're serving? Well, I think you touched on it before. Um, and I think this is something that I, I landed on early in my career, um, which is all of these issues are so intertwined. And one of the reasons I really love Juma is it tries to tackle a couple of them, mm-hmm. right? We we tackle jobs, we tackle financial capability, we um, we tackle education. Um, but really, you know, we 
we don't have the expertise um, to tackle housing. We, we do not have the expertise to tackle behavioral mental health problems. And so um, we really have to rely on partners and we all need to be on the same page in, in terms of supporting the young people, meeting them where they're at and, and making sure they get the resources that they need um, to be successful in, in adulthood. Um, you know, childcare is another one that often comes up for our young people. Our job is actually um, often a good fit for young parents because their family members will often be off work by the time our shifts come around, and so they can sort of balance it that way. But you know, we work with with partners to make sure young people have this holistic support. But currently, I don't see a ton of incentives um, in the sector, in the field, to do so. Um, you know, there are very, very few funders who are actively supporting the partnership. They they will often um, say we would like you to partner, but the reality is that we, we need the dollars to do that. Um, and, and it's really the time and space to focus on building those sustainable partnerships that we end up otherwise using um, to find more funding. Um, and so that's that's the direct trade that I see. Yeah, I mean, what what about capital? I mean, that's obviously that's a huge issue for our for our sector. Uh, how do you, you know, what do you see as the trends? Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier you've gotten some good attention from philanthropy, rightfully so, for the wonderful work you do. Uh, I guess, yeah, what are you thinking about on the revenue side? So. We are trying to uh, achieve break-even on our social enterprise. We're not there yet, but that's one of our goals. Um, and then on the contributed revenue side, um, you know, we're taking approach of uh, a mix of fundraising locally and then fundraising at national um, for some of the systems change work that we're doing. Um, you know, the, the work that we're doing with corporate America and, and changing how they're employing young people. Um, you know, I will say that one of the challenges that I face is there's um, a lot of funders who fund at the national level who want to fund a, a program like ours that's serving a thousand plus young people um, will often um, be laser focused on funding systems change. But the reality is we're only able to do that because we do direct service. <laughs> we only are informed in how to be an excellent manager of young people because we are actually managing them and directly serving them. And so we are sometimes in a tough spot. Um, I think that, you know, there's there needs to be the recognition that in order to get to good systems change, you still need to have sort of the proof of concept and, and the direct experience on the ground. It doesn't necessarily have to be within the same organization, um, but I am seeing less and less funding going towards direct services in our space. Yeah, and those two things need to go hand in hand. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes, you know, you hear this uh, expression, the capital stack for, you know, for-profit ventures, and it's a clear stack of capital that starts with something and then stacks up. I kind of feel like we're in the, like, pickup sticks of capital <laughs> <laughs> arena, <laughs> you know, because it's just not very well organized for, certainly for social enterprise, let alone the, the nonprofit sector. Uh, you know, you've mentioned uh, a lot of the, the challenges, the opportunities at hand. I guess uh, maybe my concluding question is, you know, what do you see for the field at large? Where can we work collectively to try to create some 
some change and some progress. Uh, I mean, I really resonate with what you said about uh, doing the practical work on the ground integrated with systems change work. And I think, as you said, the pendulum in philanthropy and government tends to swing from one to the other. Uh, you know, for a while it's all about direct service, then it's all about changing systems. And uh, and yet, I think they, uh, to do credible systems change work, you have to understand what's happening uh, on the ground. And, you know, these are, as you explained in your uh, story, these are real people's lives today, and people need this kind of uh, assistance, you know, today before all these systems are changed. Right. So, uh, yeah, I guess I just wonder if you, you know, where do you think as a field we could work more collectively together to create uh, some change? I think it's in this this last piece that I was mentioning um, around. Well, for us, again, we see the systems change through influencing corporate America. Juma is only ever going to be able to employ a few thousand young people ourselves per year. But if we can impact the hiring and management practices of Fortune 500 companies, we have the opportunity to influence how hundreds of thousands and millions of young people are employed in their first job and ideally in, in how they progress in, in their careers. And we're not the only ones in this space. Um, but I could also see how it would be onerous for a company to be talking to lots of nonprofits that can, you know, work with, um, you know, bringing them 20 candidates at a time, right. five candidates at a time. I think that the sector in the field in general is really embracing and censuring um, this focus on equity. And so if we can get a collective voice around how companies need to uh, work differently, um, I think we could have uh, real impact, you know, again, not just not just in the nonprofit sector and in social enterprise, but just in how people are employed. Well, it's a very inspiring uh, vision of the future, and I certainly hope uh, we have the privilege to collaborate with you on that, because I think you know, getting to the mainstream <laughs> is is really, you know, clearly what we have to do to affect uh, the, you know, the large numbers of people who could really benefit from this. So, you know, thanks so much for being with us today, uh, Adrian. It's a joy uh, to see you leading Juma to watch the incredible work that you're doing there. Uh, and we'll, you know, we'll be paying attention uh, as I know you'll continue to progress uh, and, you know, impact people's lives in a really positive way. Thank well, you so thank, much. Thank you so much, Carla. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Let's Get to Work. To access all of our content and resources to help you grow your business and increase the impact of your employment social enterprise, head over to redfworkshop.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and subscribing. They'll help new listeners discover the show. Stay tuned for a new episode next month. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.